you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 276. It's titled, Don't Retire, Settle Instead. Last Saturday, LaPrell, my daughter, and I visited a store in Phoenix on Central Avenue. It's called Stuff Antiques. It's owned by Joe Weaver. The store sold vintage lights, lamps, and chandeliers, and also some vintage slot machines. It was absolutely amazing, the variety and the excellent condition of these lights. Joe said he had been at this store for 24 years. He owned the building. He'd been in his previous building for over 30 years. I asked you to do a a fair amount of business online. He said, no, I don't do anything online. It's just too much trouble. You walk around the store and there's signs that just say, do not. Not do not touch, just do not. I saw a banker's lamp. These are green shaded desk lamps that you often see in cubicles. I had one in my cubicle back at uh, my investment advisory firm when I had a cubicle. The original green shaded banker's lamp was invented in 1909 by American engineer Harrison D. McFadden. He filed a patent that year. Joe had some of those lamps. The color of the green, it was just, it was such a better shade of green than the $40 lamps you can buy on Amazon. I asked him how much it was. $875. There were no prices in this store. But Joe knew exactly where each item came from and what he wanted for it. Before I found out how long he had been in business, I thought he might have been in his 60s. He's 79 years old. He says his wife has been wanting him to retire for 10 years. But he said, I'm not the retiring type. He wants to sell his business, though. He says he's asking $3 million. You only have to put $1.5 million down, and he'll carry a note for $1.5 million. He's kind of in a bind. I mean, there is a ton of inventory in this shop. But the value of the business, in some regards, is the building, which is worth well over a million dollars because it's right there on Central Avenue. The light rail goes in front of it. So someone interested in being in the antique lighting business probably doesn't have $3 million. I asked Joe, what, what would he do? He sold his business and retired. He said, I'd just keep fixing vintage slot machines. He really enjoys it. He didn't start out doing that. He actually hired a guy that would fix the vintage machines, and he found they just didn't do it right. So he learned on his own little by little, just like he learned fixing lamps. Fixing vintage slot machines for Joe is an example of settled work. When I say don't retire, settle, it's a play on words. There's a concept called settled work. It's a term coined by Christopher Alexander, Sarah Ishikawa, 
and Murray Silverstein in their book, A Pattern Language, Towns, Buildings, Construction. This is a book on architecture, design, and philosophy that came out in the 70s. Here's their definition of settled work. It is the work which unites all the threads of a person's life into one activity. The activity becomes a complete and wholehearted extension of the person behind it. It is a kind of work one cannot come to overnight, but only by gradual development. And it is the kind of work that is so thoroughly a part of one's way of life that it most naturally occurs within or very near the home. When it is free to develop, the workplace and home gradually fuse to become one thing. Now, in this architectural book, they're talking about having a part of your house that is sort of your workshop, where you do this settled work. They continue, it may be the kind of work that a man has been doing all his life, but as settled work, it becomes more profound, more concrete, and more unique. The problem is that very many people never achieve the experience of settled work. This is essentially because the person during his working life has neither the time or space to develop it. Work is all-consuming. When the weekend comes, people do not have the energy to start a new, demanding kind of work. It does not allow time for the slow growth of settled work, which comes from within and may not always carry its weight in the marketplace. They suggest that perhaps when a person turns 40, that they take one day a week off or a half day and then gradually build themselves a workshop in their home or neighborhood and start experimenting to figure out what this settled work should be. Work that you do when you're in your retirement years. That's what this episode's about. How do we find our settled work? Again, their definition is work that unites all the threads of a person's life into one activity. It becomes a complete and wholehearted extension of the person behind it. It's work that is profound, concrete, unique. It develops gradually, not overnight, and it needs time and space to figure out. The work that I do today, podcasting, writing, could be be considered settled work. I started trying to identify that work 20 years ago. In November 1999, my oldest son was in the second grade. He had just turned eight. We went on a two-week trip to the Yucatan in Mexico. At the airport, I found a book that I purchased. It was called Soloing by Harriet Rubin. That book has changed my life. In the book, she writes, in solo land, which essentially is working for yourself, but leveraging the tools and technology in order to do that. She writes, work and freedom are synonyms, not opposites. Soloing is like being an artist. Soloing demands creativity, self-discipline, self-leadership, and ability to see the world in a grain of sand. Because your span of control shrinks, but your power to influence others expands. Most of all, soloing demands courage, the gumption to be opinionated and stand up for your own visions. This last is not as easy as it sounds. She also wrote, if you are not making promises that are bigger than you think you can keep, then you are going to be bored. That book set a vision for me, like, wow, I could work on my own? 
and get paid and not get bored, which is what I tried to avoid being my entire professional life. I didn't know what to do, but it planted that desire for that freedom. Now, as an investment advisor, I spent a lot of time on airplanes flying to clients' meetings. And in 2001, I decided to write a book on how to invest. Now, it's been 19 years since I started that. Only this year was the book actually published. It's a long stretch. Not that I worked on it that entire time. Because in November 2002, we went back to the Yucatan, this time my entire family, spent two weeks in Mexico, and at the end, I decided... I want to write a novel. And I spent four years learning to write a novel, which I never published. But as part of that process, in June 2003, I went to a writer's conference in Aspen, and I bought a moleskin notebook. I never heard of a moleskin. And I started what I now know is called a commonplace book. Commonplace books became popular in early modern Europe. John Locke, the English philosopher in 1685 wrote a treatise in French on commonplace books. It was translated into English in 1706. It was titled A Method of Making Commonplace Books. Nicholas Baspains, in his book Every Book, Its Reader, The Power of the Printed Word to Stir the World, talked about Locke's commonplace book and what it was. And he described it as it's a book essentially in which techniques for entering proverbs, quotations, ideas, speeches, were formulated. Locke gave specific advice on how to arrange material by subject and category, using such key topics as love, politics, religion. Commonplace books, it must be stressed, are not journals, which are chronological and introspective. My notebook started with just writing notes related to the novel I was writing, but eventually evolved into writing notes about articles I was reading, things such as Managing Oneself, an article by Peter Drucker in Harvard Business Review. I took notes on books I'd read, Jim Collins' Good to Great. I had notes about websites I wanted to create. I listed out the client fees my clients were paying me. At one point, I wrote about rules of thumb, such as valuation, momentum, surprise, parentheses, I put Black Swan. This was right after reading Taleb's Black Swan book. In other words, it's a book of just mess. It's not organized by topic. It just has notes. In January 2004, I, I jotted that I had spent 16 days on the road, eight nights in hotels. Right after that, I listed out some secular investment trends. This is January 2004. I wrote stocks, single-digit returns, rising interest rates. Trillions of dollars in 401k rollovers. Impact of China. The lengthening of work life due to insufficient assets. The idea that people are not going to be able to retire like they have before because they don't have pensions. And they haven't, either, they haven't saved enough for retirement. And returns are going to be lower. Now, single-digit stock returns, back then we were used to forecasting double-digit returns. But it wasn't going to happen. What have the returns been since January 2004? U.S. stocks have returned 9% annualized, so just less than double-digit returns. But non-U.S. developed have only returned 5% annualized and emerging markets 7% annualized. 
Interest rates in January 2004, 30-day treasuries were 0.8%, and the 10-year treasury was 4.4%. The Federal Reserve was just beginning to raise interest rates three years after the recession had ended. The 30-day treasury went from 0.8% in January 2004. By January 2005, it was 2%. January 2006, 4.1%. And by January 2007, 30-day treasuries were at 5% because the Fed had been raising its policy rate. Then the great financial crisis hit, and by January 2008, 30-day treasuries were back down to 3.3%. So in 2004, in my commonplace book, I said single-digit returns. Now, returns are much lower, which gets back to why we need settled work. Just like the trends I pointed out in 2004, that it would be more difficult for people to retire because they don't have sufficient assets. They're going to have to work longer. We need to find work that we're gratified with, that we're satisfied with, that we feel settled with, that we can do for decades. One way we discover that is have a commonplace book. Have somewhere where you can write down ideas. Over years, notes from books you're reading. I've spent a decade filling in information on that book. It's not organized. As I was just going through the pages, in May 2008, I wrote a list of things I could potentially do if I left my investment firm. One, select projects that will transform you. Two, residual income. Three, writing blog. Four, client pay travel to interesting locales. Five, speeches. Six, avoid long-term engagements that could lead to high-end clerical work over time. Seven, no specific investment advice to clients. General advice only. Then everything fell apart, as you know, in the fall of 2008 into 2009 with the great financial crisis. I wrote that I learned in 2009 how long it takes to write, design something well. I had spent much of that fall writing a paper on retirement income because I saw that individuals' retirement portfolios had been devastated, decimated, and they couldn't rely solely on the market for the retirement. So I started looking at other solutions and did a paper on immediate annuities. Also in January 1st, 2009, I said, I wrote, I put in 10,000 hours on investments. I should use that as a framework. I wrote, focus on fewer initiatives. Focus investments on periodic pieces that are done well. Commentary, spotlights, white papers, webinars. Finally, I wrote, focus on personal brand and use that as a platform. This is 2009, three years before I quit my job. Over that 10-year period, an idea in terms of how I could live my life professionally, began to emerge. But it took time, hours upon hours on the plane, flying 150,000 miles a year, often just having that notebook in front of me, thinking, reflecting. To find settled work takes time. It takes reflection. Let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. 
It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Recently, I was at the post office waiting in line. I hate to wait in line. There were 15 people in front of me. Two of them had about 15 to 20 boxes. They were young women in their early 20s. And it occurred to me, they're just mailing their stuff because they can't, they're not old enough to rent a truck. So they're mailing their belongings in 15, 20 odd sized boxes at the post office. So I was waiting a long time. There was a gentleman in line. He was 72. I know he was 72 because he was speaking very loudly. He was asking, why does everything have to be right now? He said his son is 39. He does, does all his mailings online. But this 72-year-old likes to go to the post office. He says we need a daily dose of waiting. And he went on and on about the younger generation. I was surprised nobody yelled out, okay, boomer, but we want everything fast. Want it now. And we need time and space in order to figure out our settled work. And not only that, we need control over our time in order to be able to have the space to build settled work. Terry Paquat in the book Art of the Siesta wrote, The originality of the work each of us hopes to achieve depends largely upon our retaining control of our time. This is a book about naps. Naps being a sign of rebellion because you have control of your time if you're able to take an afternoon nap. One way that we control our time 
is to put up filters. To learn to say no. I'm reading a book by Ryan Holiday right now called Stillness is the Key. He writes, there is way too much coming at us. In order to think clearly, it is essential that each of us figures out how to filter out the inconsequential from the essential. It is not enough to be inclined toward deeper thought and sober analysis. A leader must create time and space for it. And he mentions that our ego wants us to know everything, to keep up on the latest television show or industry rumor or the latest crisis in the Middle East. He writes, there is ego in trying to appear the most informed person in the room, the one with all the gossip who knows every single thing that's happening in everyone's life. Not only does this cost us our peace of mind, but there's a serious opportunity cost too. If we were stiller, more confident, had the longer view, what truly meaningful subject could we dedicate our mental energy to? We need filters. We can't have all this information coming at us all the time. We need space and time to reflect. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, in his book, Ecce Homo, How One Becomes What One Is, wrote, To close one's eyes too much, to seals one's ears too much, to keep certain things at a distance. In other words, filters. This is the first principle of prudent. The first proof of the fact that a man is not an accident, but a necessity. The popular word for this instinct of defense is taste. He says, we need the ability to say no, but also to say no as seldom as possible. What he's saying is if we keep getting bombarded by things all the time, that our defenses weaken and we'll not be able to say no. Eventually we'll give in. We need the skill of saying the graceful no, as Greg McEwen calls it in essentialism. To have filters to be able to say no, but without offending people. Nietzsche concludes, the act of keeping things off, of holding them at a distance, amounts to a discharge of strength. Do not deceive yourselves on this point. An expenditure of energy directed at purely negative ends. Simply by being compelled to keep constantly on his guard, a man may grow so weak as to be unable any longer to defend himself. So we need filters so we don't always have to say no to things coming at us. And we need filters so we don't have so much information coming at us so that we have time to reflect and ponder and experiment and figure out what our settled work is. And it will take us a decade or two to figure that out. I mentioned Ryan Holiday. He recently did a Ask Me Anything on Reddit, and I read through it because I recently did one also, and I didn't really know how they worked. But in his responses, he wrote, my definition of success is autonomy. Do I have control over my life and time? Yes or no. Making more money but having less freedom would be a step backwards. Selling more books but having to give up more editorial control? Same thing. Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote, if wealth is giving you fewer options instead of more, you're doing it wrong. Holiday keeps a commonplace book. Somebody asks him if your house is burning down and firefighters say you have one minute to go into your library to say whatever you can, what book would you grab? And he said, my commonplace book, since it has all my notes for all my books and the page numbers of stuff I need to reference. 
He also pointed out he has his assistant scan it every few months, just in case. To find settled work takes time. It takes reflection, a commonplace book. It takes saying no, filters, eliminating things and activities so we can focus on what is essential. And finally, it takes capturing serendipity. Serendipity is the occurrence and development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way. We can call it luck. You can call it fortune, but it's recognizing opportunities and grabbing them. Focusing on areas that are working, where you're seeing some momentum, areas that you're curious about. One reason we need time and space is so, so that we're not so bogged down in the grind of daily living that we don't recognize opportunities that come our way. Serendipitous events that come along and that can help us. Edgar Allan Poe wrote, All experience in matters of philosophical discovery teaches us that in such discovery, it is the unforeseen upon which we must calculate most largely. The unforeseen. Rebecca Solnit, in her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, asked, how do you calculate upon the unforeseen? She continued, it seems to be the art of recognizing the role of the unforeseen, of keeping your balance amid surprises, of collaborating with chance of recognizing that there are some essential mysteries in the world, and thereby a limit to calculation, to plan, to control. We have no idea what our future holds. Knowing how long we're going to live, knowing what our income will be, knowing what the sequence of returns will be, we just don't know. Hopefully, all of us will have enough assets to retire at whatever age we choose. But it would be better if we could find a way to develop, like Joe Weaver did, settled work. Something that we do that's satisfying, that generates some income, that we could do for decades into the future. And recognize it might take a decade or two to figure out what that is. It'll come slowly, if you take the time and the space by having filters, saying no, and experimenting and looking for serendipity, so you can find that pattern as it slowly emerges and discover what that settled work is for you. That's episode 276. You can get show notes for this episode, the links of the books and other articles I shared at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free Insider's Guide, and I'll email those links to you each week in the weekly email that goes out right after the episode is released. It also includes an essay on money investing in the economy, things that might not have made it into the podcast, other things I was considering that week. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to that email list. It's not available on the public web, and you, you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided an investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>